TED Audio Collective. So the whole time I was kind of going through my treatment, I had these two feelings, fear and curiosity. When Kate Pickert was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer, she was freaked out, of course. But she also saw it as an incredible opportunity. Because Kate is an award-winning journalist. And boobs? Well, they're kind of her beat. Her first cover story for Time magazine was about mothers who breastfed their kids longer than most. And Time famously put a woman breastfeeding a a very large three-year-old toddler on the cover of Time. Nearly a decade later, Kate decided to document her entire process of dealing with her breast cancer. I was a healthcare reporter and I was like, "I, I understand this. And then I realized very quickly that I didn't at all. This is Zigzag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work and how people are experimenting with new ways to run their companies, their careers, and their lives. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and Kate Pickard's book is called Radical, The Science, Culture, and History of Breast Cancer in America. Kate also happens to be a dear friend of my business partner, Jen Poyant. And so I'm handing the reins of this episode over to Jen because I knew that their conversation would go to the most intimate places about how Kate combined work with motherhood and cancer and came out the other side. They also talk about practical things that Kate did so she would still be seen by the outside world as a capable human being, things that most women don't even know is an option when they're dealing with cancer. I also did this thing called scalp cooling, so I did not lose my hair. And it worked. And it worked. Jen and Kate will get right to it after a quick break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. My name's Kate Pickert. I'm a journalist, and I'm the author of Radical, The Science, Culture, and History of Breast Cancer in America. Welcome. Thanks for having me. There's such a a nexus between you becoming an expert in this subject matter and your personal experience. You had mentioned offhandedly an anecdote about your husband, who's a journalist as well, and you starting to attend diagnosis meetings with your doctors and you both taking notes furiously. You guys were recording these doctor appointments. And I wondered when you said that whether you'd made some sort of choice that you knew this was going to be research for work or whether you were just trying to be organized. What was going on for you to make that decision so early on? I mean, a cancer diagnosis, and I don't think this is specific to breast cancer, but you're sort of expected to become an expert in your disease in a very short period of time. Because very quickly after you get diagnosed, you actually have to start making decisions. 
maybe surgery is a couple weeks away, maybe chemo is a few weeks away, what kind of surgery to have, what kind of chemo, where do I get treated, who are my doctors? And when you start from really zero, as I did, it's really difficult to learn as much as you need to. Mm -hmm. However, there were like a bunch of things I learned in the first week or two, Mm -hmm. and I was immediately like, I have to write about this because I had been a healthcare reporter for a long time. I'd written a couple stories about breast cancer. And the disease I thought I knew was a mirage. And I realized, oh, this is way more interesting and complicated than I thought. Um, I want to come back to that, this moving back and forth between your fear and your curiosity. So being a patient and being a journalist at the same time. But I first want to, you know, give our listeners a sense of your particular and personal journey first. Mm Do you mind me asking how old you are now? Yeah, no, I, I wrote a book about it, so I'm, I'm all about sharing now. <laughs> but yeah, at the time I was diagnosed, it was December 2014. I was 35 years old. The idea of ever developing breast cancer or any type of cancer had never occurred to me. I didn't have people with cancer in my life, in my family. I had no history, family history of breast cancer. And I had a three-year-old daughter. So the diagnosis was a complete and total shock. So I counted this up for the book, but I was in treatment for 372 days. So I had the full year of treatment, which a lot of women undergo. I had four months of chemotherapy paired with Herceptin Mm -hmm. infusions, targeted drug therapy. Then I had surgery. I had a double mastectomy. I had 22 lymph nodes removed from under my arm. That was the painful part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I had five weeks of daily radiation and then another six months of Herceptin infusions. So I had, it was a long time. It's really important that I say this isn't the case for every woman. I was 35 years old healthy, fit. I was not a typical breast cancer patient, which is a woman who's older. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this may have made a difference. I think also I had excellent doctors where I was treated who were really on top of side effects, but chemo was not nearly as bad as I was expecting it to be. I thought I would be throwing up. I thought I would be bald. I thought I would be completely exhausted. And there were moments when I felt very tired Mm -hmm. and my taste buds were destroyed Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, fingernails on my fingers felt like they were going to fall off. I mean, I had a lot of those kind of weird physical manifestations of what it means when you have poison in your body um, and you're, you know, being treated with a toxic drug. But yeah, I worked throughout my chemotherapy. I would get chemotherapy every third Thursday. So the day of chemo, I would take off work. And then Friday, I would start to feel sick. Then I would feel sick Saturday and Sunday, feel a little bit queasy Monday. And then kind of Tuesday, I would start to ease back into work. And my oncologist knew that I had a career and that I had a job and that it was important to me to continue to work. And that's why she scheduled my chemo on Thursdays. So this so you and had recovery time. Yeah. And I mean, this is kind of like one of the things that it's important for women to know is like, for example, that's one thing you could ask for. Like right. you could decide what day of the week you will get chemo based on what's good for your family and your work. And like one thing I really want to happen with the book is I want women to like learn about this stuff so they know what to ask. Uh, So, yeah, so I was able to work. I also did this thing called scalp cooling. So Mm -hmm. I wore these very cold, like, 20 below zero caps on my head while I was getting chemotherapy infusions, which restricted the blood flow in my scalp and kind of put my hair follicles to sleep so they weren't as damaged, so I did not lose my hair. And it worked. And it worked. Why doesn't everybody do that? Why isn't— It seems like it's not even presented as an option as far as I can see. So there's a few nuances, but I will say that in Europe they've been doing it for decades. And it's just kind of becoming something a little bit more here. When I did it, it was not FDA approved in this country. You could still do it, but there was no way you're going to get insurance to pay for it because it wasn't an FDA approved device. Since then, the FDA has approved two scalp cooling systems. So Uh we may see 
it more. There are a few reasons why it might not work or people might do it. The first is that depending on the kind of chemo you get in your own body, it may just not work. Right. But I was discouraged from doing it by some doctors and nurses that I had spoken to who were like, you know, it doesn't really work. And also it will give you a headache. And I said, okay, but like, but I only have to get six chemotherapy infusions, right? And they said, yeah, but it'll be like a really long day if you do this because you have to keep the caps on after. And so I said like, yeah, but I'm just talking about like six crappy days that are crappy anyway. So To save my hair. And then I won't lose my hair. And they're like, yeah, that's true. And so it just goes to show you that like, Doctors, they can be amazing and brilliant and compassionate, but they don't know what it's like to be a patient. And so, you know, as these things would happen to me, I would be like, oh, I'm having a realization, not just about myself, but this is what it's like for women. Like, their doctors don't understand what it's like to be in their shoes. Mm -hmm. So you can't rely on your doctor for everything because they're not going to, they don't really understand exactly what it's like. And I, I remember in the book you noting that one of the reasons you made that choice was because you didn't want your daughter to be scared right. of what you looked like without hair. So it was worth the try for you. Yeah. I mean, and my daughter was three at the time. We didn't even tell her what was going on because a three-year-old cannot understand the complexities. What are we going to tell her? Mommy has a very scary disease. No, like, yeah, why would no, I do you that, you know? Just, and little kids that age are so empathetic. At least my daughter was. So she, she it would have been very upsetting. So because I didn't lose my hair, I didn't look any different. She didn't know. You know, when I had surgery, we sent her to her grandparents for a couple of weeks. But keeping my hair also gave me privacy just when I was out in public. I mean, you mentioned to me that you were also able to go interview for a job without telling anyone. Yeah, I decided I would switch careers in the middle of chemotherapy. Yeah, you know, (laughs) just as you do. So I was a staff writer at Time Magazine, but after we moved to L.A., I was teaching at USC in the evenings, and I really loved teaching. It was super fun for me, and I thought... And actually, I mean, I already had in my mind that I wanted to write a book. I didn't know it would be a book about cancer. And I thought, oh, professor job, that would be perfect. And a job opened up in Southern California, which is, it's really hard to find a tenure track academic job in journalism. There there aren't very many of yeah. them anywhere in the country. Yeah. So one opened up and I applied for it and I was scheduled to interview and the day before I got my diagnosis. So the interview was the next day. And you went? I said to my husband, you know, I mean, there's no point going to this interview. And he said, why? And I said, well, you know, because I'm going to die. So why would I go to this interview? And he said, well, maybe you won't die. You know, you never know. (laughs) And so I went to the interview and I think I was just so I was it's weird. One of the reactions I had after being diagnosed was to just feel like super high on life. Like everything in the world seemed technicolor to me. I was suddenly like the world is amazing and I don't want to leave it. It was such a delight actually to go into a room and sit with people and just talk about journalism education. (laughs) Honestly, I think I was kind of on fire. You nailed the interview. Yeah, I nailed the interview. (laughs) And then it was like, okay, then I had to figure out all these other things, whatever. And then they called me and said, we want to bring you back. You're a finalist. It's a two-day on-campus interview. This is what it's like for an academic job. So I said to my oncologist, I'm going to do this interview. So keeping my hair was really important for that, right? And then also she's like, okay, scheduled on this day because you'll be most recovered from your previous chemotherapy infusion. So interview right before you get another one because you won't feel very sick. We planned it all out. And she worked with me on that, you know, because I told her what was really going on in my life. And it's like, she's like, okay, what are your priorities? Like she was really compassionate. And um, so then I, when I interviewed for the position on campus, I booked a hotel really close to campus, even though it's in the same town where I live because I didn't want to have to drive because I was pretty tired. I had a catheter in my arm where I was getting chemotherapy, so I wore a sweater so no one would see it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I hid the fact that I was a cancer patient just because I thought 
maybe there'll be a life after cancer, and I don't want this to completely define me. When the dean called to offer me the position, I had laryngitis very badly. Twice when I got chemo, I got really bad laryngitis. I couldn't talk. I felt okay, but I couldn't talk, so I had to put her off. And then when we finally talked, she offered me the job, and I was really surprised. And then I started teaching three days after I finished my final radiation session. So the timing was very lucky for me. Can you tell me about the moment that you realized that something was wrong and then when you decided to go see someone, see a doctor? So even though I was a healthcare reporter, I was just wasn't the kind of person that would go to, a, to the doctor. Mm-hmm. If I felt bad or I hurt myself, I, was, I grew up on a farm, we're pretty like tough people, mm-hmm. and I just was like a healthcare reporter without a general practitioner. Like I didn't even have a regular doctor that I would go see. So midway through 2014, I started having some nipple discharge, mm-hmm. and I had breastfed my daughter, and my breasts were always kind of a little weird after that, as you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so I didn't really pay much attention to it. And I think a lot of people would have been really scared and immediately gone to the doctor. And I have to be honest and say that I didn't. So I had this discharge. It was kind of like in my shirt once in a while. And I thought like, this is weird. Okay, I'll go to the doctor. I was really busy with work. I was doing a huge project about medical marijuana for kids, actually. It was a really interesting story. And I was at the point in a story where I just always reach this point with a story where I become completely obsessed with the story. So I was in that state for a long time. And when the story was done, I went to see an internal medicine resident. I told her about the nipple discharge and her eyes grew wide, but she said, it's probably nothing. And part of the reason I didn't go to the doctor too is I had looked up statistics that nipple discharge nine times out of 10, it's caused by something very benign. Mm -hmm. I have since learned that, but if you're 35 and it's only on one side and there were other factors that I didn't read about and, and didn't know, but that's how I found out that something was wrong. One of the most important moments of our friendship was when we had our children because they were very close in age. And yes. you, I don't know if you remember this. But I remember. You recommended a breastfeeding consultant to me because I was struggling to breastfeed on one side. And I think about that a lot in the context of your experience of both breastfeeding and how important it was to mm. you, but also your relationship to breastfeeding in your reporting career. Right. And, you know, you, one of your first major— I know, it major, does seem like it's my beat, right? Yeah, like, it's so interesting. Your first major cover story, I believe, at yeah. time was a story about Dr. Sears and breastfeeding and attachment parenting. So we used to talk about this all the time. So I just think about that a lot in the context of this story because it morphed into— you covering yourself and your own experience with breast care mm-hmm. into a nightmare for you. So to discover this, how quickly after you were done breastfeeding? It was about a year, I think. Yeah. But I so kinda, there's no connection or is there is there a connection? Well, that's a great question, Jen. And that's one of the things that we don't know. Okay. And one of the things I write in the book is kind of about like how understudied breasts are, how yeah. like we don't even really understand how... We haven't mapped the milk ducts in the human breast. A lot of scientific study is done on mice, which have different kinds of breasts. Like a woman's breast has like more than 10 holes in it that feed back into ducts. In my reporting, I realized how much we don't know. And, you know, I asked Dr. Susan Love, who's like the most famous breast cancer book author of all time. She sold over a million copies of her book, and she's very well-known in the oncological community. Like, why don't we know how breasts work? And she said, because 
men. <laughs> so it's not men now, but like historically, it just hasn't been something that there's been a big push for to, research, for research and to better understand just the anatomy, just the basic, basic science. Yeah. Right. And so you get so much into the history of the research of all the major drugs and breakthroughs that have come about in the last 20 or so years for breast cancer, one of which was the drug that saved your life, Herceptin. There are two big drugs I write about in the book. One is Herceptin, which saved my life, and the other one is a drug called Tamoxifen, which is a very common breast cancer drug. I think it might be the most common cancer drug in the world, and it's used to treat estrogen-fueled breast cancer. And both of those drugs almost didn't happen. Tamoxifen was developed originally to be a morning-after pill, like Mm -hmm. a a type of birth control drug, Mm -hmm. and it was about to be thrown in the garbage can. And somebody said, hey, you know, breast cancer is related to estrogen. Maybe we should try it for that. And it was like on a whim. And it's saved so many women's lives. It's such an important drug. And with Herceptin, it's a remarkable drug, one of the few real big breakthroughs Mm -hmm. in breast cancer history. And it basically is a targeted therapy that works against something called HER2-positive breast cancer, which is what I had, which is less common than the estrogen-fueled breast cancer. It's related to an overabundance of a protein. HER2-positive breast cancer used to be a death sentence. It used to be among the most fatal types of breast cancer, and now it's one of the most survivable. You said it was how many days? 372 days of treatment. So that was just, just over a year. Yeah, just over a year. It sounds like just like a rapid fire year of psychological trauma. <laughs> well, I really think that because I was reporting on it, it was less traumatic because So we talked at the beginning about this, like, curiosity and fear, but I was, like, curious about my fear also. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, I feel this. Why do I feel this? What is the basis for this particular emotion I'm having now? What would make other women feel like this? And how does it fit in to the broader context of breast cancer treatment? So, like, that's the way I was thinking all the time. So I never really got depressed. I really did. I had a lot of anxiety, and I still do about it. Sure. But I really didn't get depressed because I was just like, I can use all of this. I mean, it's it's such a cool thing when you can somehow, you know, I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but like to really make some lemonade out of something crappy that yeah. happens. So I was just constantly trying to process everything so I could understand it, so I could think about how it would fit into the larger narrative. I'm just trying to imagine this, but were there days where you were sitting there looking at a certain study and seeing certain statistics and data and then saying oh, this is where I fall into this group, and this is the experience that this group of women might have when it comes to their prognosis, and then that gave you some sort of comfort? Is that what you mean? Oh, absolutely. How long has it been since you were diagnosed? This December, it'll be five years, this December. Yeah. And five years is also another thing that, like, women hear about all the time. Five years is not all that meaningful for a lot of women. I I interviewed one woman whose breast cancer recurred after 17 years. The five-year mark isn't as important as I think a lot of women believe. And I know that's a scary thing to hear, but that's the truth. And I think if I have a message with this book, it's that women can handle more information. Why are we not, like— explaining to women these nuances. Women are tough. They're smart. Let's be honest. I think we can be a lot more honest with patients about the realities. The end of the book, you talk about how, if anything, if the biggest thing that you've learned from this whole experience is to be open to change. And I want to talk about why, why that's the big lesson for you and what that means for your life going forward. I know it's a big question. Mm -hmm. 
As far as being open to change in my own life, I think it's important to be expansive in your thinking, just the way we want scientists to be expansive in their own thinking. I think personally, that's a really good way to kind of move through life as well. If you want things to evolve and stay interesting, you've got to be open to new experiences. Finishing the book tour, will that feel like uh, somehow like putting a point on this experience and then you move on to different work or to like go back to your professorship and look for something else that's like a totally different beat? Well, I mean, my curiosity is just insatiable, Jen. (laughs) I think it's definitely the case that there will be something glorious about finishing this and moving forward to a completely unrelated topic. Is congratulations, is, can I say congratulations? To yeah, you congratulations on the book. I mean, congratulations on the book I'll take. When people say congratulations on beating cancer, I just think, what, what does that mean? What, did, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, I, I, meant like, it, I meant it for the book. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks so much. Yeah, it's really fun to talk about and to kind of think back about how it related to my own recovery. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on ZigZag. Thanks so much for having me on ZigZag. That was Kate Pickert, the author of Radical, talking to my co-founder, Jen Poyant. Jen and I will be back in a minute to talk about how awkward and difficult it can be to question the way a friend deals with a diagnosis, uh, particularly something like breast cancer. And we've also got a specific question we need answered by you, dear listener. See you in a sec. This is Zigzag. I'm Anoush. I'm Jen. Jen, that was a great interview. Thank you. Man, Kate is tough. She's a tough cookie. She always has been. But here's the thing. While I was listening to you guys, it kind of reminded me of a friend's sister who was so annoyed when people would say, she was dealing with breast cancer, two kids. She was so annoyed when people are like, you're so brave. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do it. She's like, F you. I don't have a choice. No, exactly. I'm a mother, and, like, what else am I going to do? Crawl into my bed? I have no—this is it. Yeah. And so what I feel like Kate did nicely, though, was kind of walk the line of not being sappy about it, like, yes, I'm very brave, but also, like, also vulnerable in in her book. Yep. And I think the way she does that is by telling the narratives of so many women— She reflects, like, all of the different types of experiences and also how they might change depending on the type of breast cancer you get. Right, which I didn't even know about all of that. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly detailed about the history of these different types of breast cancer, identifying them, and then the treatments that have come about in the past 30 to 40 years, sometimes radically changing the prognosis from just like hers, from extremely dangerous and deadly to very survivable. Reading this book, as I'm sure everyone will do, is you'll think through all the people that you know yep. who have had breast cancer. And, like, it really freaks me out. The one chapter where she's talking about the pre-cancer yep. that a friend of mine had and how my friend was like, get them off. She had a radical mastectomy. Mm-hmm. But then reading Kate's book, I was like, whoa, did she not need to do that? Yeah. Like, But who am I to question my friend's choice? 
that's exactly what the book is about. I think it's about facing those questions and her looking at all of them really closely, both from a personal and from a journalist's more objective perspective, if that's possible to do at the same time. I think, I think she, she straddles she did. it. Yes. And she it's really about trying to understand those decisions, both from the medical community's point of view, from the patient's point of view. And from society's point of view, like from people that don't know anything about any of this. Now, why did you think this was a zigzag episode? I just thought it was fascinating that she was able to do exactly that, straddle the personal experience and perspective, but then fashion her care, her personal experience in her care, research her own diagnosis, and then write it all up into a really interesting and smart and very informative book. It sounds like it actually helped her kind of get through the whole thing. She was able to put on her objective journalism hat, and that actually made her feel like herself. I think it gave her a sense of control in a situation where she didn't feel like she had much. God, that story about, like, Colin, her husband, being like, well, you might live, so you should go for the interview. That's exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It's, like, crazy. When she was, she was texting me when I was asking her if she was interested in coming on the show, and she was, you know, we were talking. She was like, what's the angle? And I explained the angle, that angle that we just talked about. And I was like, would you be willing to talk about that stuff? And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, I didn't put it in the book, but, yeah, I was— Oh, that's you know, I was, not, I haven't finished reading the book. No, that's, that's not, not in the book. Like, the, her going on chemo and then heading off to Job doctor's appointments and stuff with a port in her arm and, like, hiding it all. Wow. It's just crazy. Good on you, Kate Picker. We are—we are honored to know you. So— you were sort of talking about who identifying as a healthy person at work yeah. when actually you're an unwell person and who somebody thinks you are, but you're not, yep. right? Okay, so that is a lovely segue to my question for listeners on this episode. Listeners, I want to know, have you ever tried to hide your identity at the office or at work? Have you ever been misidentified? I'll give you an example. <laughs> someone, when I was in a meeting, uh, one place where I was an employee, they said, yeah, of course this place is diverse. We've got Manoush sitting right here. And I was like, wait, what? I have had every privilege you could possibly have. What on earth are you referring to? So maybe somebody identified you as a person of color, but you don't identify that way. Or maybe someone thought you were straight, but you're not. Or it could be anything. Mm-hmm. I just want to hear your story, because I'm going to tell my own story more on that one in an upcoming episode, and I'd love to include yours as well. Jen, have you ever been misidentified? Maybe we should save it for that episode. I'm going to think about it, but I'm pretty sure I have not. What you see is what you get. (laughs) Please record a voice memo and email us at zigzag at stable G. We really want this one to be a voice memo, I'm going to say, because we want to hear your tone of voice when you tell your story. Please, I hope we get at least one person going to come in for this. Oh, I'm sure there are lots of people. I, I, I mean, I would imagine this must have happened, right, to other people? Yeah. I mean, I also think potentially there's maybe some gender identity stories that could come yeah. up, like non-binary stories, potentially. Okay. Record a voice memo on your phone. Email it to zigzag at stable G. And of course, as I say every week, I tell you to sign up for the newsletter, which comes out every two weeks, and you can sign up really quickly at stableg.com. And I pour my heart and freaking soul into that thing. And there's beautiful art and pictures and links to my favorite articles and a letter and, and it's funny and all that stuff. And then Jen does her thing at the end of every episode, which is 
Share the episode. Share the episode. Tell someone you know and love. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Is that what you were going to ask me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about this? Hold on. Okay, I'm just looking at the levels and watching. <laughs> it's mesmerizing me. I'm sorry. What did you write? Uh...